all the texts that we have already considered so far. So considering this morning the book of Acts, let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help as we consider His Word. Our Lord, we are grateful this morning that You have given us Your Word to reveal Yourself to us. And this morning as we consider this special portion of Scripture which really tells the story of how the Gospel has gone out to all the earth, may we especially rejoice in who You are. May we think this morning about how it applies to us that we carry on the mantle of what has begun uh, here in this narrative that we're reading. And Lord, may your word this morning inspire us, encourage us, help us, and even convict us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are certain names that every biblical believer should know, and so we try to mention those names from time to time. One of those names that really should be uh, readily recognized by believers is that of Adoniram Judson, who lived in the late 1700s through the mid-1800s. He was most known because he was really the first commissioned um, international missionary from the United States. Uh, There had been a few missionaries uh, prior to him, but but from the United States, he and, and his uh, boatmates, uh, the, the Newells, became the first missionaries who intentionally relocated from one place to another with the express purpose of reaching an unreached people group. And so he was in many ways a pioneer as he made his voyage around the world to a country called Burma, which now would be Myanmar. Um, and with the four of them making their way out, there's many, many interesting things about Judson's life. Um, as, as Baptist by conviction, we find his, his um, journey toward becoming a Baptist rather interesting. You see, when he got on the boat to go to the foreign field, he wasn't a Baptist yet. He was a Congregationalist. But he knew that when he arrived, he would meet the famous missionary William Carey himself a Baptist, and so in order to be prepared for a conversation to help Carrie understand why he was wrong, he, he, on this boat journey, sat down and began to thoroughly study the scriptures about this matter of infant baptism so that he could, he could uh, have, a, have a good conversation, and what he learned as he studied the scriptures was, in fact, that he, he was an error. And uh, by the time he arrived on the shores, uh, many, many weeks later, having studied the scriptures, he had come to be a convinced Baptist and his wife uh, a few weeks after him as well. So Judson spent almost 40 years in Burma, which I said is now Myanmar. During his ministry, he led hundreds of Burmese people to Christ from the Karen tribe. Uh, He translated the Bible. Uh, He wrote many Christian works, translated several Christian works. He was greatly uh, used of God to unify people together for the cause of global missions. Judson died in April of 1850 of of lung disease, but he left a lasting impact on that area of the world. In fact, I'm told that now, what, a a century and a half later, that the believers in Myanmar 
still in many ways look to Judson with great admiration and appreciation. And this morning, if you were a believer in, in that area of the world and I stood up and said Adoniram Judson's name, everybody would know who he is because he was used greatly of God to bring the gospel to those people. So the story of how the gospel arrives, the story of how the gospel makes its way into a people is a, is a tremendously important story. And so the book of Acts is important for us as well because it is the story not just of how the, the word came, how the gospel came to a specific group, but really how the gospel made its way to all peoples throughout the earth. And ultimately, we reap the benefits even today of what happened in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is narrative literature, right? It is a narrative of how God is sovereignly doing His work of redemption by the risen Lord Jesus through Spirit-empowered believers preaching the gospel to all people and establishing local churches. There's a lot in that sentence. It's going to take me two, at least two, if not three weeks, to say that sentence. <laughs> we'll kind of take it apart a little bit at a time and uh, examines from various phrases in that. But that's really kind of a summary of everything we've learned in chapters 1 through 12. The book of Acts is a, a narrative about how God is sovereignly doing His work of redemption by the risen Lord Jesus through Spirit-empowered believers preaching the gospel to all people and establishing local churches. And so in the coming weeks, we'll just kind of take that statement and expand it and understand how it relates to the text that we've already considered um, through chapters 1 through 12 of, of the book. So, we start off with the point that Acts is narrative literature. Remember that we said that it is unique in the New Testament. Right? The Gospels um, have some measure of, of appropriate God-ordained redundancy, Right? I mean, I'm not saying redundant in a, in a demeaning sense. The Gospels serve a great purpose, but they, but they kind of in many ways repeat one another, telling the story from slightly different vantage points with slightly different emphases. Well, Acts is unique because it is the only uh, historical literature, it is the only narrative literature that encompasses this this age of the early church, how the gospel goes out. And so thinking of it in those terms as narrative literature gives us some really important things to chew on. What I'd like to do is to, to move that to the back burner for this week and get to that sometime in the next couple weeks about really how do we think about narrative literature in the Bible. And uh, I want to do a little bit of probably next week we'll do a little bit of study on how we study, right? A little bit of examination of, of how we look at this type of literature in the Bible. So we're going we're gonna to do that uh, at a later, a later date, how we handle narrative literature. So let's take this statement again and think, think it through. God is sovereignly at work. God is, is doing a sovereign work. One author has said it this way, Acts assumes God's role over history, events, and people. All right? I mean, the, 
the apostles frequently and their preaching say what? This is what you've heard about. Jesus was the fulfillment of all of this Old Testament prophecy. This is how God is working, how He is fulfilling what He has said He would do. This church age is the fulfillment of all that God had promised. The outpouring of the Spirit, the reaching of the Gentile nations, all happened because God said it would. This also, this affirmation of God's sovereignty happens in some very specific and even sometimes very dramatic ways, right? God directs the movements of the apostles. He opens hearts and saves men. In just this last chapter we considered, he, he swung open prison doors and chains fell off. He, he sovereignly delivered. Even, even God overrules in, in the opposition. But even sometimes he uses the opposition to accomplish his purposes, does he not? All right, and we've seen everything from, the, from the, Steve, the stoning of Stephen, right, where Paul is standing there, not only witnessing but participating in, in the killing of the first Christian martyr, and then God turns that whole thing on its head. He takes this one who is opposing the church, who is still breathing out threatenings against the church, and he turns him into a mainstay preacher of the gospel. God is, is sovereignly at work. God's word, word advances. The gospel cannot be stopped despite the opposition, the persecution. And we sometimes use a couple terms, uh, sovereignty or sovereignly working, that kind of thing. And we use the word providence. Now, these are two closely related words that sometimes we use almost interchangeably, there is a slight difference in meaning. Sovereign has the idea of, of ruling, right? You'll talk about a sovereign as a king. Well, God is the sovereign of the universe. This speaks of God's supreme rule over all things. Nothing escapes God's control. He is the sovereign. Providence is closely related because it's predicated on the fact that he is sovereign. God is in complete control, and so providence is that work of God in the affairs of man, sometimes through, through supernatural means, but most often just through ordinary natural means. And so usually when we're speaking of providence, we're talking about just, just how the, the normal cadence of life, the normal occurrences of life still bring about his purposes. Do you ever look and at something that God did and you say, well, I never could have worked that out if I had tried. I mean, isn't it amazing how these, these unrelated circumstances all wove together to accomplish this good and I, I never could have done it. And like kind of the catchy little trendy phrase right now in, in, Christian, in, in American evangelicalism is, it's a God thing, right? Well, you know how the Puritans would have said that? Providence, which is a slightly more sophisticated way of saying the same thing, right? It, it, it's God is at work. That's God's providence. And so when we look at a book like Acts and we see things converging in a way that no human could have controlled, we think about the fact that God is sovereign. He is in control. 
He's providentially working in our lives and the lives of those around us. Now, why is that important? Well, do you realize that we as believers should gain tremendous comfort from knowing that God is in control? That an all-wise, all-loving God never has put his hand aside his face and said, Oh no, what am I going to do now? I heard a phrase a number of years ago that has stuck with me. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? God's never surprised by anything. He is in complete control, and that has tremendous practical benefit. I was just talking to one of our daughters, and I won't tell you Julia's name, uh, (laughs) last night. And we were talking about, there's this little phrase that they use around our kids' school. Have you ever heard it before? You get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. I love it, right? And uh, so the kids, will, the kids will use that, and the teachers will use it against the kids, right? And, um, and, and so our kids know that. They hear it on a fairly regular basis. You get what you get, and you don't pitch a fit. So I asked Julia, I said, now, why? Why shouldn't we pitch a fit when we get what we don't want or we don't get what we do want? And she had a, you know, a good answer, you know, well, God doesn't want us to. Like, that's good. That's good, uh, but, but tell me more. Well, what about God is true that, that makes the fact that we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't pitch a fit when we don't get our way? She said, well, God tells us not to. That's good, that's good. Okay, let's, let's back up a step. Okay, who controls what we get, Julia? God. And does God ever make a mistake? No. Does God always know best? Yes. All right, so then when we get what we get, we shouldn't pitch a fit because God is what? You tell me. Did she come up with the right answer? Good, because God is in control. I mean, God's sovereignty is an immensely practical doctrine because there are times that we get what we get as adults. We get what we get and we're pitching a fit, <laughs> right? And we may be doing it in a little more, you know, uh, sophisticated and adult way, but but uh, we're still inside. You know, our inner child is stomping our foot. And God, you're not. This isn't fair. I shouldn't be getting it. I should be getting this. Oh, may we rest in the reality that God is in control. When we look at a narrative like the Gospel of Acts, excuse me, like the the narrative of Acts. We're reminded of this truth. God is in control. How often should we remind ourselves, as Romans says, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purposes? So what is it this morning that you are tempted to kind of pitch a fit about? What is it this morning in your life, that circumstance, that situation, that relationship, that just frustrates you. And I wonder how often do we take those circumstances before the Lord and we say, Lord, I don't get it, I don't understand, but I do know your character, that you are a good and loving God, that all you do is for your glory and my good, and you are in control. So the book of Acts reminds us that God is working that he is sovereignly working in the affairs of man. Of course, one of the main themes of, the, of Acts is 
what? The gospel. The gospel going forward. The, the good news of Jesus going out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. This good news of Jesus is at the very forefront. It is at the tip of the spear when we were talking about the advance of God's church. The gospel is, is really central. I mean, if you, you have no gospel, you have no book of Acts. It's the good news of Jesus. And it's helpful to us in a number of ways because it reminds us certain things about the gospel. First of all, it reminds us of the, 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 the imperative elements of the gospel. In other words, it, Acts clarifies for us. Um, if you ask a believer... What is the gospel? That's a word that people throw around. In fact, a couple, a couple years ago, I was at a conference, and I was speaking with another, another pastor here in the area, and um, we were talking about the term gospel, and he said, I, I made some allusion to the fact that people will use the word gospel, and they, they might not fully understand what he means, and that's even true of some preachers. And uh, he said, yeah, for, for a lot of guys, I'm afraid it's just kind of in the junk drawer of their theology, right? It's just another, you know, it's kind of a thing rolling around in there. Yeah, the gospel too. No, no, the gospel is central. The good news of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. And, and the book of Acts clarifies that for us. You, you ask a believer, you know, what is the gospel? Well, Jesus loves you. Uh, or, you know, ask Jesus into your heart. Or Jesus can change your life. Well, all of those things are true, but that's not really the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I've, I've probably told you before that when I sit on an ordination council, I ask a number of different questions, but there's one question that I always ask. State the gospel in 60 seconds or less. Because I feel like if a guy can't state the gospel in 60 seconds or less, he hasn't done enough thinking about it, right? He just really needs to ask himself, what are the core elements of the gospel? What is the sine qua non, the without which not, that you must have it to have the gospel and be able to articulate that? So what if I gave a pop quiz this morning, right? I went around to each of you, all right, state the gospel in 60 seconds or less. Could you do it? It's important for us to have a good grasp on the understanding of the good news of Jesus, right? The word gospel itself is from the Greek with the prefix good, news, angelion, that which is declared. It's the good news. So what is the good news of Jesus? It is that the eternal Son of God came from heaven to earth and he lived a perfect life. Not the life that you and I live, because we are guilty of sin. Sin is that which violates the holy character of God. We do things that we ought not to do, we don't do things that we ought to do, and when we do that, we violate the commands of a holy God, and we stand condemned before Him. Not only do we deserve separation from God in this life, but also for all eternity in the life to come in a terrible place called hell. That's what we deserve because of our sin. But Jesus Christ did not live that life. He lived the perfect life. But then he was killed on a terrible cross, not for his own sins, but for yours and mine. 
He was buried, and he rose again the third day. And when he rose again, he signified that he has the authority to offer forgiveness of sin to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. Faith is that idea of depending completely on Jesus Christ and Him alone for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And, and the other side of that coin is repentance, that is turning from my way, from my sin, from my self-dependence. This is the good news, my friends. This is the good news that Jesus Christ can redeem us. He can buy us back from the auction block of sin through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And without that gospel. We have no Christianity. We have no hope. We have no church. We must learn to, to as, the gospel, as the book of Acts does for us, clarify the good news of Jesus Christ and be able to tell it. So how well do you explain the gospel? May I just challenge you to practice it, <laughs> right? How do you get better at explaining the gospel? By doing it, by practicing it. So, that, so then the next question would be not just how well do you explain the gospel, but how often do you explain the gospel? You see, inviting people to church is good. It's important. But that's actually not giving the gospel. That's inviting people to church. Uh, uh, telling people, you know, Jesus changed my life. That's good. That's a testimony. You should do that. But that's not really giving the good news of Jesus. What is the good news of Jesus? And how often do you seek out those opportunities? How often do I seek out those opportunities to communicate the truth of the transformation of Jesus, the good news of the gospel? Now, it's interesting, and the video alluded to it, that Luke 1 says, all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. The word, the word began is important because the book of Acts really is a continuation of it, right? It's kind of, it's kind of volume two of Luke's gospel. It's really Jesus' ministry through chosen messengers. So you'll see perhaps in your Bible, um, at least it is in my Bible, that the title is Acts of the Apostles. That's kind of the traditional name uh, of the book, but we've said before that it might be better named Acts of the Risen Savior through Spirit-empowered men. The gospel is the presentation of the work of Jesus. He is central. He is actually the central character. In fact, he is the only character that unites the whole book. And so when we say, what is the gospel, we really could just as easily say, who is the gospel? Because the, gospel, the, the, the book of Acts is really about Jesus. It also helps us to understand that, that this is important for, for believer and unbeliever alike. And so a moment ago, we explained the gospel, that each of us need to be forgiven of our sins through faith and repentance. And the question would be this morning, have you ever done that? Has there ever been a time when you have repented of your sins? That is to say, you have turned from your own self-dependence. You've recognized that your own way is inadequate. You've turned from that to depend completely on Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. If you've never done that, my friend, today can be the day that you would do that. Any of us who are members of North Hills would be happy to sit down with the Bible and to answer your questions and to more thoroughly explain anything that you are not understanding. But this, my friends, is central. It's important. 
It also helps us to understand about the gospel that redemption is available to all. Right? The gospel is global. The, what's the theme? theme? Theme verse of the book of Acts? You remember? It's Acts. Anybody remember? 1-8, right? You will be witnesses to me. That's, that's speaking of giving the gospel. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. And that's actually an outline for the book of Acts, right? This outward progression. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That happens in chapter 2. And then you'll be witnesses. You'll be those who testify of what you know. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, end of the earth. The mission that Christ sends us to is captured in verse 8. You will be my witnesses. That's one who testifies of what he knows to be true. Um, and so the main theme is witnessing to Christ. Um, the word witness is applied to believers 15 times in the book of Acts. There are at least 60 examples of public or private witnessing in Acts. And so we learn from that that the gospel is for all and the gospel is, to, is a mandate. It is for believers to be giving the gospel. That is the business that we are to be about. And because of that, the gospel is invincible. Because of who it is about, that persecution can't stop it, opposition can't stop it, the gospel continues to go forward. We see this again and again, right? We saw, so we got Acts 1 through 12, which is really the first half of the book, and even that could be divided into two kind of subsets. So the close of the first section is with the martyrdom of Stephen. Right? This is the Jerusalem section. And then as we move into chapter 7, we begin to see God doing a work in this man named Saul or Paul, and now the gospel is expanding even to Judea and Samaria. But each of those sections close with somebody dying. Like a persec- the, uh, the, someone being martyred. In the first half, it's Stephen, and in the second half, it's the Apostle James. But that doesn't stop the gospel. The gospel is bigger than one person's witness. The gospel is invincible. We also notice in the book of Acts that the Spirit is indispensable. It goes, the gospel goes out to all the people of the earth. It is for everyone. It is a mandate. Believers are to be preaching the gospel. But the reason for all of this is because it is Spirit-empowered. The Spirit is no less important than any other member of the Trinity. The Spirit is no less divine than any other member of the Trinity. But what did Jesus say when He promised the Spirit? When He has come, He will testify of Me. Right? He will glorify Me, Jesus says. And so when the Spirit of God is at work, what happens? Jesus gets glory. You ever walk out of a worship service and you say, boy, the Spirit was great in there. I just uh, praise the Spirit. Right? Actually, if the Spirit is at work, we're going to walk out saying what? Jesus is great because that is the work of the Spirit. And so as, as the, the fame of Jesus is spread throughout the world, this cannot be done without the Spirit's work. And so this is why we see the Spirit run through all of the chapters, especially the early chapters of the book of Acts. Now, to be sure, the Spirit is doing something unusual. We are in a, a transitional uh, 
era of God's redemptive work. And so while the Spirit works differently in this age, there is no, it is no less true that the Spirit is needed today. Our gospel witness is hollow. It is empty without the Spirit's empowerment. The message of Jesus is carried along into the hearts of men by the work of the Spirit. We can't witness on our own. We can't persuade. We can't convince. We must have the Spirit working in and through us, even in the church today. And so we see the Spirit come up again and again that the, that, that, that Christ is magnified. He is glorified because the Spirit is at work. The gospel power comes from the third member of the Trinity who preaches the gospel to men's hearts, which we ourselves cannot do. There's one other emphasis, and really this is an emphasis that we're going to consider in coming weeks as we take a step back and look at Acts 1 through 12. And that is that the work that God is doing in this age, God's plan for the redeemed, is local churches. So God was working in, in Israel uh, prior to Jesus' coming. And as, you, as we've seen in the book of Acts, Israel is being offered an opportunity to enter into a kingdom relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. But what we saw in those early chapters of Acts is what? Israel is rejecting. They are, they are not only have they killed their Messiah but they are now rejecting his messengers who are taking the message out. And so what we're going to happen, see happen here in Acts 13, right, is there is a turning point in the history of the church. And it now becomes a largely Gentile church. Even to this day, it is in large part a Gentile church. Now, that is not to say that God doesn't still have a work and a place for Israel. We're actually going to get deep into that. Uh, next year, kind of some of the theology that we want to be thinking about that. But the fact is that right now, God is at work most primarily through the local church. That, that the local church, as Timothy says, is the pillar and ground of truth. It is the messenger of the gospel. It is God's glory on display in this age. And so we'll see that. We see that in, in verses one, uh, chapters 1 through 12. We're going to continue to see it even more profoundly as we see the missionary section of the book of Acts. This is the story of God's fame, the work of Jesus Christ going out to the ends of the earth. I am not that great a conversationalist. I'm a bit of an introvert. Some of you know that about me. Small talk is hard for me. I have to really work at it. Um, so I, I like to learn little phrases, little questions that can gender and gender conversation with people that I can ask a question that I can just sit there and shut up all right so one of the questions that I've learned to be very effective uh, in in my life in conversation is tell me your story ever do that with someone maybe tell me your story of this specific thing in your life you know, you know oh, oh you guys met a couple years ago oh and then you got married okay well tell me your story or sometimes if you ask it open-ended, people will tell you, like, the story that's most important. Um, so it's a kind of another way of saying, you know, tell me about yourself, because when you hear someone's story, you learn a whole lot about them, right? 
You learn what is important to them. You learn that how they got to where they are now. They, you learn that what, what has shaped them. Well, that's what we're considering when we consider the book of Acts. It's almost as if we, we are asking, asking Jesus, asking this, this, the church, tell me your story. So in the coming weeks, we'll consider more what that means to be, to be looking at narrative literature. But what a blessing for us to see God's story at work. You've probably heard it before, and a lot of people like to say that it is possible, we don't know this, but it is possible linguistically that somehow the word history has been derived from his story. And I think that as we consider the history of the church, that is even more true than we normally think. This is God's story. It is the work that God is doing. It is a narrative. It is a story of how God is sovereignly doing His work of redemption by the risen Lord Jesus through Spirit-empowered believers preaching the gospel to all people and establishing local churches. Father, help us as we learn Your Word, as we continue to examine this portion of Scripture. May we be reminded even this morning that you are doing a work in your church and in your people, a work that did not stop when the end of Acts was written, but continues even today. I'm going to invite you to remain bowed before the Lord this morning, to confess sin to Him, to solidify the decision that the Lord has laid on your heart.